So I'll be doing the Bible reading from 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9. The rights of an apostle. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? As do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas. Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat it of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading while it is treading out the grain. It is, not, it is, uh, is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this, way, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share, is what, share in what is offered at, on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. For I have, sorry, um, but I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like not having the law, though I'm not free from, though I'm not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that this so that by all means I might save more. I do all, all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in, all, in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aim aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Well, let's look at the Word of God together and indeed let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much uh, for enabling us to hear these different accents up front, different brothers and sisters who've come to know you as their Lord and Saviour from different places. And thank you that your gospel is for all people. And as we seek tonight to hear your voice and what it means to be a participant of the gospel, that you will so convict us 
and enable us to indeed share in this sensational news of Jesus. And we pray it for his sake. Amen. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say or do can and will be held against you in a court of law. You have the right to speak to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. I assume that you've heard these words before. On TV, that is. <laughs> Not personally because you've been arrested. You've heard it in movies. And these words are meant to put fear in your hearts. And although they're meant to do that, they actually show that even if you are a criminal, you have rights. Knowledge of these rights are powerful. Knowledge of these rights is what enables you to act upon them. And we in the West, certainly, we're big on rights, aren't we? There are human rights, there are natural rights, there are legal rights, there are labor rights, there are women's rights, children's rights, youth rights, animal rights. Why, there's gender rights as well, which we referred to yesterday afternoon. It's intrinsic to us to support rights. <coughs> After all, what's the opposite of rights? Wrongs. And who wants to support wrongs? We're on about rights. In the United States Declaration of Independence in 1776, we read, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that's men and women, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the American Declaration of Independence. That is, according to the United States, rights are intrinsic to creation, and God as creator gives his creatures unalienable rights. In the chapter before us that was read by Angelo, Paul also speaks about rights. But Paul wants us to show how to use our rights as participants in the gospel. Participants in the gospel. Now, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you will recall that the writer, the Apostle Paul, actually addresses the issues that have been reported to him, dobbed into him by a certain household. So just turn back, if you're in 1 Corinthians, to chapter 1, just to put us in the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Verse 11. One Corinthians chapter one verse eleven. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. And then he goes on to speak about various issues. That is to say, these people from Chloe's household had dobbed them in. So, if you don't want to get admonished by the apostle, don't share anything with anyone named Chloe. Or Chloe's household, let the reader understand. <laughs> but from chapter 7 onwards, right, so chapters 1 to 6 is all about these issues that have been dobbed in to the Apostle Paul about divisions and quarrelling and their sexual immorality and their lawsuits against one another. They're all reported to him and he deals with that in chapters 1 to 6. But from chapter 7 onwards, he addresses the issues that the Corinthians themselves wrote to Paul about. Right? Issues of marriage in chapter 7, or food offered to idols in chapters 8 to 11, which is what we're going to look at partially tonight. Issues of gender, which we looked at yesterday, and the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, of gifts of the Spirit, or gifts of God, actually, in chapters 12 to 14, the resurrection in chapter 15, the collection in chapter 16. You see, there, there are different issues that have been reported to him as well as what they write to him about that they want him to address. And when he addresses these issues, he uses this, um, and I've got it in your outline, the yes, but formula. The yes, but formula. 
You know, he says something like this in chapter 7 regarding marriage. He says, yes, it is good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You see the yes, but thing. Yes, I can speak in tongues more than all of you, but I would rather speak five intelligible words in my mind, with my mind, in order to instruct others, etc. Right? That's in chapter 14. There's one exception to this yes, but kind of formula regarding the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. He says, but in the following instructions, I have no praise for you. Now, it's all but there's no yes at all when it comes to the Lord's Supper and his instructions. So in the context of our passage tonight that was read to us in chapter 9, but we're going to begin in chapter 8. The context of our passage, Paul is addressing the matter which the Corinthians raise regarding food sacrificed to idols. Right? Food sacrificed to idols. Now we need to understand that in Corinth, there were lots of temples, and in those temples, they had dedicated food to pagan gods. And these temples often had restaurants attached to them, and you as a public bystander could go in and grab some food from these uh, restaurants where food was sacrificed to idols. Now, this is not uncommon at all. This is something that you'll find in most Asian countries, and certainly even in Asian restaurants here in Australia. You go to an Asian restaurant, you'll probably see somewhere tucked away in a corner a statue, usually a guy with a fat tummy, right, and some bowl of fruit there. Food sacrificed to idols. It's that kind of thing. The Nantian Temple has a, has a restaurant that you can eat vegetarian food. But you can bet your bottom dollar there's something that's going on there. So there's, there's food sacrificed to idols. Now what are we to do with these food sacrificed to idols? The Corinthians are keen to find out what the Apostle Paul has to say about it. Chapter 8. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning <coughs> chapter 8, 1 Corinthians... Our aim is to get to chapter 9, of course, but I'm just putting you in the flow of the argument. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. You see what he's saying? Yes, we all have knowledge concerning food sacrificed to idols, that idols are nothing because of God is one, but this knowledge must be used in love because love builds up. Knowledge just puffs up, but love builds up. And anything I'm going to say, says the Apostle Paul, must be put under this bigger banner, this framework of how we are to love other people. And so we go to verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7. It says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You see, he's addressing the issues of rights and how we are to use our rights. And we're not to use our rights as a stumbling block to others. You see, it's our right to eat anything. We have the freedom to eat anything as people. We know that idols are nothing. And we know that idols are nothing. So we have the freedom to eat or to not eat food that has been sacrificed to them. But not everyone has this knowledge. If their conscience is weak, then they think eating food sacrificed to idols is wicked and their conscience is defiled when they eat such meat, then for me to actually just eat in front of them is not loving to them because it's unhelpful because of their conscience. Their conscience, if ill-informed, if you go against it, even if it's ill-informed, is in the end sin. See, what's your conscience? Your conscience is a moral register of right and wrong. What's your moral register? Anybody heard of Jiminy Cricket? Hands up if you heard of Jiminy Cricket. Oh, thank the Lord. I was wondering how old I was. Um, I still think I know. But anyway, that's uh, another story again. But Jiminy Cricket used to say, does anybody know? Let your 
conscience be your guide. Let your conscience be your guide. And he's basically right, except he thought that your conscience was always right. But it can be wrong. Your conscience can be ill-informed. So therefore, you've got to train your conscience all the time. You've got to train your conscience with the scriptures. Uh, if your moral register can be well-informed or badly informed. So as Christians, we've always got to be training our conscience to be sensitive to what God says. So the issue here is how do you preserve the integrity of our brothers and sisters' conscience if it is ill-informed? Well, be careful that the knowledge of your rights regarding freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. To love this brother, to love this sister may mean foregoing your rights. You see, the issue is rights. Foregoing your rights to eat anything. A number of years ago, there was a person that we met who grew up in a particular Baptist church in which she was told, and she grew up with this understanding that she was not allowed to wear makeup or uh, go dancing or play cards. And so if she came to our mid-year conference, she really would have found it hard to see you guys dancing up the front here you know, at the time. Sorry, I'm not making you feel bad. Oh, no, no, feel bad, feel bad. Uh, if there was someone who was coming along with that kind of conscience, okay? So there was this conscience that she had. And then we read through 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 with her, and she finally got it. She thought, oh, I have freedom. I actually have freedom. And you could see her working through the fact that she could put on a bit of makeup and a bit of lippy along the way. And she could actually play cards, and she actually picked up the courage at one point in time to come to us and say, please teach me how to play cards. And we thought, oh. Isn't that wonderful? She's really progressed in her understanding. And she thought, well, can you teach me, please teach me a really simple game. And the, what do you think of the most simplest game we could think of in the game of cards? No, cheat. <laughs> there she is going. So someone with that kind of conscience, you know, can she's about to cheat and it's like this and there's sweat pouring down everywhere. And I think, oh, I've killed her conscience again. You know, so... That's, you just don't do that. I'm so stupid. You know, so if I can be that stupid, you can be too. So that's why I'm teaching you not to be stupid. Now, Paul doesn't want you to harm anybody's conscience, even if it's not well informed, lest it becomes hardened by someone else's knowledge of their rights. It's got to do with rights. And Paul goes on to illustrate these things. But just before we do, I just want to ask you a question about your conscience. How well informed is your conscience by the scriptures? Because you're always being discipled. You're either being discipled by the word of God, prayer, meeting with God's people in church or at conferences or uni or wherever, but the word of God is discipling you. But if you're not being discipled of the word of God, you're still being discipled, aren't you? By the world. What enters your mind will inform your conscience, and if it continually is from the world, then what part of the world is informing your conscience? What part of the world is actually shaping your conscience? Is it TV? What I find so tricky sometimes is I try to... You know, there's a place for... Um, Avoiding such things because it becomes so, so, so normal to accept sexual innuendo in all the story plots. It's so hard to find a movie where there's no sexual innuendo, is there? Let alone soft, soft pornography, basically. And it's so hard to find movies where there's no swearing. And so we just watch them and it just becomes part of our normal life and part of the air that we breathe. And, and also with materialism, etc. So, see, I... I sometimes, I don't know, because I'm so sheltered in various ways, and then I, I, come and I hear Paula speak about how she you know, is so tempted to be an angry missionary. I'm kind of with her. You know, but you don't want to, you won't get supported if you're an angry missionary, says Paul. So you got, sorry, says Jason, so you've got to be careful about that. But it's no right to think, oh, I'm super righteous compared to them. But I just want to ask you, is your conscience sensitive to sexual immorality? Or is it hardened to it? Make sure that your conscience is informed by the scriptures. But the point, sorry, that's an aside. The point here has got to do with rights and what you do with your rights. Paul goes on to illustrate something regarding the rights of an apostle in chapter 9. In verse 1 he says, Am I not free? 
Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? As apostles, that is. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Or as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? See what he's saying? As an apostle, he has rights too. He had the right to be supported with food and drink. He had the right to marry and bring a wife with him everywhere, just like Peter. Incidentally, please note that Peter had a wife. You know, the tradition in the Roman Catholic denomination is that Peter didn't have a wife. That's why the popes who are supposedly descending from Peter are meant to remain single like every other priest. But Peter had a wife. If you think, oh, this might not be the Peter that's referring to in the 12, well, you can even go to Matthew chapter 8. Peter has a mother-in-law who is healed by Jesus. You wouldn't exactly want a mother-in-law if you didn't get a wife in the process, would you? <laughs> he has a wife. He has a wife. Sorry, my mother-in-law-to-be will be wonderful. <laughs> Please don't misunderstand me. <laughs> she really will be. She really is beautiful. But Peter, Peter is married. Please note that. He's a married man. <coughs> to be paid for his ministry to them is something he has a right for as well. And he even illustrates this with regard to animal rights. He speaks about animal rights. Can you believe that? It's there in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plough in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So he actually says, oxen have rights. If he's going to tread out the grain, don't muzzle it. Don't, don't put something over its mouth so that it can't eat. It has a right to the food that it's plowing. And he's saying, look at that. And therefore, that's an illustration of the fact that a servant of the gospel has a right to actually get supported from the people that they minister to. Same idea. Now, there are some scholars who actually say the Apostle Paul got it wrong. He got it completely wrong because, you see, in the Old Testament, it's all about oxen. It's not about people. Don Carson, I remember saying to this passage, and this scholarship just said, his first response to such scholarship is, oxen can't read. <laughs> so it must apply to others in some sense. I mean, there are clever animals, but not that clever. So it's got to apply to us. Yes, we apostles have the right to get paid for our services. But, verse 12, verse 12, chapter 9. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He foregoes his rights for the sake of the gospel. Verse 15, verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. See, Paul gave up all these rights because he was compelled to preach the gospel. This sensational news that was anticipated in the Old Testament, this sensational news that was couriered with beautiful fruit from heaven regarding Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, this beautiful news that had to do with the apostolic gospel regarding Jesus and what he did through his death and resurrection, as we saw in the book of Romans last night. Woe to him if he doesn't preach this gospel. For Paul, preaching the gospel was not just a privilege 
or a burning desire that grew over time, which was the case for me, I suspect it was the case, as Jason and Paula mentioned before, as well, and others of us here. Now, for Paul, this compulsion to preach began at the very point of his conversion. For Paula, it began before she became a Christian. But for Paul, it was at the point of his conversion. He was so compelled, he was so constrained, he was so hedged into a corner from the very beginning to preach the gospel. And so we read in verse 17, verse 17, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. See, what has he done with his right? He's turned his right into an obligation. It's not so that I get what I demand. He's turned it so that I'm obligated to preach it, compelled to preach it, free of charge, free of charge. If his preaching is voluntary, he deserves support for his services. But if his preaching is not voluntary, if he has no choice, as it were, if he's compelled to preach, then he can give up his rights, preach the gospel free of charge. And so his reward is to serve Without reward. <laughs> His reward is to preach without pay. Now, of course, we're not apostles and we're not commissioned to preach the gospel at the point of our conversion in an apostolic, unique way. What happened to him happened to him. Right? There's something unique about this. This is not something that is prescriptive or prescribed for all time. It's something that describes what happened to the Apostle Paul. So we can't say that this is what must be the case for all of us. But what we can say is that we can share the heartbeat of the Apostle by asking what rights would we be willing to forego in order to preach the gospel? What rights would you be willing to forego in order to preach the gospel. This sensational news that we've been bathing in all week. Would you be willing to give up the right to comfort? Just like the McPhails. They didn't tell you the whole story. One of the main reasons they had to come back is because Paula had these migraines daily that just put her out of action. For months and months and months. They had dengue fever. They had to be stripped back of everything. You willing to give up that right to go and do that kind of thing? A right to health? Would you be willing to give up the right to, well, dare I say, marriage? Willing to stay single for the sake of the gospel so that you can go into places which are dangerous for families? Helen Roseview was a single medical missionary to the Congo. She shared the gospel as she helped build hospitals and training centres. She was taken as a prisoner by rebel forces for six months, enduring beatings and rape. And eventually she was released. She returned to the UK and encouraged many to go on to the mission field. And there's a whole stack of them on the mission field because of Helen Roosevelt. John Stott wrote a book which I couldn't find because one of you may have bought it and good on you for buying it if you did, called The Cross of Christ. If you've got The Cross of Christ, read it. If you don't have it, buy it and read it. John Stott uh, is one of these guys who stayed single as well. Uh, and I actually found his own testimony regarding his singleness. He wrote this, I have never taken a solemn vow or heroic decision to remain single. On the contrary, during my 20s and 30s, like most people, I was expecting to marry one day. In fact, during this period, I twice began to develop a relationship with a lady who I thought might be God's choice of life partner for me. But when the time came to make a decision, 
I can best explain it by saying that I lacked an assurance from God that he meant me to go forward. So I drew back. And when that had happened twice, I naturally began to believe that God meant me to remain single. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I think I know why. I could never have travelled or written as extensively as I've done if I'd had the responsibilities of a wife and family. That's John Stott. Yeah. Now see, he, he did pursue a relationship. But he recognised that in the sovereignty of God, he was able to be used for such extensive ministries for the sake of the gospel. Now I could go on and on and on, but there are so many other things. Comfort, security, marriage. What about, would you be willing to raise support from friends in order to preach the gospel free of charge to those that you serve? That's what the Apostle Paul is doing with the Corinthians. Now I don't often do this, but I'm going to do it right now though, which will put some people uncomfortable, and that is namely the staff who serve you. That's exactly what they're doing. They've decided to ask others to support them in order to serve you because you guys haven't got any money. <laughs> but you do. You really do. If you own a smartphone, you're in the top 2% of the world in terms of wealth. You don't think you have money, but how can you support a smartphone? You don't think you have money, but you can get a coffee somewhere quite easily, get a McDonald's meal, which is at least $10, and it's going to kill you anyway. So why not give up that $10 a month? Can I put to you now, this is an aside from the text, can I put to you now, would you be willing to give up $10 a month to support a staff worker who is serving you? $10 a month. If you're not giving in your poverty, you're never going to give in your riches. So please prayerfully consider it. The staff who are serving you here are terrific people. They've given up the right to earn bucket loads of money to get the kind of paltry wage in order to serve you. And I'd love you to prayerfully consider that. And give with joy. And a very simple way of doing it, you can go to a website called AFES. AFES, and then in the search you can just type in the name of the respective staff person and then it'll tell you how you can support them with credit card details with X dollars per month. Can you please prayerfully consider that? Give joyfully though. Don't, don't give it out of obligation. You only give out of joy. So if you're going to give it like, oh, I have to give because I felt guilty that night, forget it. You know, we don't want that. But you think... They're doing great gospel work. I'd love to support them in doing that. That's a wonderful thing to do. And please do. <coughs> AFES.org.au Search for their name. It'll all come up and you'll work it out. Come back to this. Paul's motive of giving up his rights for the sake of the gospel, well, that comes in the context. That's rather the context for which we meet the famous paragraph that I think many of you have heard before, beginning at verse 19. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became like a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some, and I do it all for the sake of the gospel." that I may share with them in its blessings. Now where it says, 
that I may share with them in its blessings. It actually says that I may be a participant in it, that I may be a participant in the gospel. In other words, that he may share in the gospel itself. How is Paul a participant in the gospel? How does Paul share in the gospel? Why, in the very character of his ministry. For what we have in the gospel is the news of Jesus that we've been looking at for the last three nights, indeed for the last three and a half days. And it involves Jesus giving up his rights to identity, uh, to, in order to identify with sinners and save them. And he does so as the Son of God and the Son of Man. He gives up his rights, doesn't he? Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, Philippians 2, but he made himself nothing. He gave up his rights to take the form of a servant, a slave, and become a man who was obedient even unto death. And Jesus gave up his right to be distinct from sin in order to identify with sinners, indeed to become sin for us. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We looked at righteousness last night. And what we discovered from Romans chapter 3 is that because God has turned aside God's anger from us unto Jesus so that we can have a right, right relationship with him, because of the propitiation, the, another thing that takes place, we can be declared not guilty and the righteousness of Jesus can actually be, as it were, transferred to me so that when God sees me, I can actually be seen as one who is totally aligned with God's perfect standards. Totally aligned only because of what Jesus has done. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that should take our breath away. That really should bring us to our knees. That should intellectually and emotionally stagger us and continue to stagger us. And Paul says that we can participate in it. We can share in this gospel because that is how he exercises his ministry, just like his saviour. He gave up his rights to identify with fellow sinners so that they might be saved. He identified with Jews and with pagans and with the weak by giving up any rights he had in order to win them, in order to save them. So with the Jews, well, Paul was no longer under the law of Moses, but he used his freedom to not place any stumbling blocks before them so that they could hear the gospel. He went respectfully to the synagogues on the Sabbath. He had Timothy circumcised in order to move around among the Jewish people. He reminded them of the law over and over again so that they could point them to Jesus, win them to Jesus. And Paul wasn't a pagan either, though. He wanted to minister to those outside the law. But as it says, look at verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. You see, there's got to be limits, doesn't there? How far do you go to become like the person outside the law? Well, do you become a porn addict to a porn addict? Do you become a drunk to a drunk? There's got to be limits somewhere. So what's the limit? Well, he's under the law of Christ. He's under the, the law of Jesus, meaning Jesus is the one who's fulfilled the law and his law is actually the law of love, which means that he still abides by what we would call the New Testament. But how does Paul become weak to the weak? Well, who are the weak? Are those the ones with the weak consciences back in chapter, uh, earlier in chapter 8? Uh, they're Christians. Is he referring to weak Christians, perhaps? Or is he referring to non-Christians who have come so close to Christianity, yet they have a fragile conscience? 
That's possible. Either way, it doesn't really matter. He wants to identify with them. But how does Paul become weak to the weak? Well, he won't eat meat offered to idols in front of them. Right? Now, that's a real issue for some of our international student brothers and sisters as they go back and return home to their home countries. They're going to have to face that kind of thing in terms of food sacrifice to idols. We have to have them teaching uh, these issues with them. But there are other little things as well that we can do in terms of actually helping people, right, in terms of giving up our rights. So we refer to uh, Matthew Meek, who's with us. He's learning Mandarin now. He knew Indonesian before that, knew Japanese as well, and now he's speaking Mandarin. It's just not right, is it? I mean, someone who can do that just just doesn't deserve to earn the right to live, really. I mean, <laughs> how can you speak so many languages and actually get away with it? I mean, and be godly as well. I mean, that's just spew material, isn't it? But isn't, isn't that wonderful? What has he done? He's given up his right to use his time elsewhere in order to speak Mandarin so that Mandarin speakers can hear the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? I've got another friend who works with me. His name is Tony Robotham. Uh, he went to a university on the Gold Coast. They didn't have any clubs or societies, so he gave up the right to be a staff worker at one level. They kind of did that by becoming a student. He became a student to students. He enrolled in a course in order to share the gospel with them, and now there's this terrific ministry on the Gold Coast. Just silly examples from me. I um, realised that if I was going to minister in particular contexts, some people are really thingy about baptism. And so I thought, well, I hadn't been baptised at that point, and so it was suggested to me that I get baptised in order to be able to minister to some people who are a bit thingy about it o across the world. So I decided to get baptised not just with sprinkling, you know, the whole hog, full immersion. So I got done at the University of New South Wales in the swimming pool, and the minister was on the side, and he got one of his MTS workers to do the dunking. And so I was there with him, and the, the guy actually put me underwater, and then as I tried to get up, he just kept me down. <laughs> I was trying, and I was going, and then suddenly I would burst out of the water, kind of just real resurrection stuff. And the guy was just, the guy was just laughing his head off at the time. It was not a solemn moment as it should have been, but nevertheless, we did this baptism for the sake of others who have a conscience about baptism. Uh, I just went to New Zealand recently, and and one of the things that when you go to international conferences the things that you've got to get put up with is, is the kinds of greetings that they have. You know, the Brits, it's a firm handshake. With the Americans, it's like a very firmer handshake. In Latin America, it's kind of a huge bear hug. One of the guys I remember, he said, Australia? And he came up to me, and then he gave me this hug, and I could feel this chin, and his ears started interlocking with mine. I go, yes, yes, I'm from Australia. And then, and then with some of the French people, they come up and kiss, you know, it's three sides, and I didn't never know which side to start on. It's kind of a bit embarrassing. And in New Zealand, have you heard of the hongi? Who's heard of the hongi? Yeah, a few of you. Oh, wow, you know what a hongi is? You, you hold your hand, then you touch noses, and you're meant to breathe the air. That's the same, right? At this conference, we had to do it with 150 people <laughs> on the first night. A hongi. I was hongied 150 times. <laughs> All for the sake of the gospel. I have no doubt that some people caught germs that way, but for the sake of the gospel, we're willing to catch germs, aren't we? Paul did all this for the sake of the gospel, so that he might be a participant in it. He was willing to be flexible, accommodating in all the matters that were of no matter to God. But he was not flexible with the gospel. The news that Jesus, the, sorry, the news of Jesus is not to be tampered with. It's not to be changed, it's not to be modified, it's not to be molded to become more attractive by extracting the message of judgment from it, or confusing it with social justice, or confusing it with this cosmic renewal gospel, or the prosperity gospel, or moralism. It's not to be flexed in any way the gospel is the gospel is the gospel we've got to be so clear about that because if we don't preach the gospel it won't be powerful to save people from hell but we've got to be flexible as we seek to proclaim the same message 
And I've got to a lot of hot water at some international conferences when I said, why don't we share what the gospel is together? And they all say, of course we all know what the gospel is. But I said, well, why don't we talk about it? And they got really huffy about it because they thought we might think differently, etc. Or I was actually looking down on them. And when we actually talked about it, we knew we believed in different gospels in the end. Just because they're nice and wonderful, etc. doesn't mean they believe the same gospel. We've got to really work hard, lovingly, carefully, which is why we spent a week on what the gospel is and what it isn't. And note also that Paul was not prepared to be flexible with the new convert either. He became all things to all people by not placing any stumbling block before them, but he did not do this, in, sorry, he did this in order to win them from their position. If a Jew became a Christian, he didn't expect them to remain under the law of Moses. No, he expected them to live under the new covenant. If the rank pagan became a Christian, uh, then he was to become a Christian and not remain in his non-Christian ways. He expected them to become a Christian with all the freedoms we enjoy under the new covenant to please Jesus and still become all things to all people. He expected them to be willing to participate in the gospel too by giving up their rights to identify with and save sinners. So if a Muslim became Christian, why not ask them to go and reach the Buddhist? <laughs> what, what are you willing to give up? You're willing to do all things. So therefore, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. This is where it's kind of all heading. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage. That's another way of saying not insisting on my rights, but rather seeking the advantage of many that they may be saved. And here's the command to you and me. Be imitators of me. That's a command, right? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What is the command? To imitate Paul by participating in the gospel. I don't know why people actually claim there is no command given to all Christians to speak the gospel. It's here. Imitate me as I follow the example of Christ. Do everything you can to see people saved. But what is it that will motivate us to participate in the gospel? At one level, it's the need. There are 7 billion people in this world today. The most liberal estimate of how many Christians there are is about 2, million, sorry, 2 billion of that 7 billion. But that's an incredibly liberal estimate. It's probably far less than that. But even if it was, that was the case, that's still 5 billion people in this world who will suffer the righteous wrath of God unless they hear the sensational news of Jesus. That's still 5 billion people. And there's probably well over 20,000 people on our own campus. How can they hear the gospel unless people like you and I are sent to them? How's the rest of Indonesia going to hear the gospel? The rest of East Timor, the rest of Portugal, the rest of Africa, the rest of the world. How are they going to hear it unless people are sent to those places? To India. It's got to come from somewhere. But before we think about out there, why don't we do what we were asked to do when we were thinking about our Jesus weeks? Pray for three people. Three people just around about you. Just to share the gospel with, perhaps read, uncover with, invite them to one of our meetings. Come to three meetings at least. But let's not just talk about it in theory. Let's do it right now. Right now, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Write down the names of three people that you are going to commit to praying for. They could be your housemates. could be your family. But we're thinking especially of friends at university on campus. Just write down the name of three people. 
and you can pray for. And I want to invite you to commit to praying for these three people regularly, <coughs> perhaps even daily, for as long as you can. Now I'm going to invite you, without talking to the person next to you, just the person next to you right now, and pray for them. Now if you're not a Christian here tonight, just listen. Just say, can you just pray? That's okay. okay? We're not going to make you feel guilty about that at all. But we're for real when it comes to wanting to see people saved. Turn to the person next to you. Don't talk. Just pray for the three names. Is that alright? Go for it. I'll give you a couple of minutes. Our gracious Father, we do commit these dear friends to you or family members. Please save them from hell by your powerful gospel. And whatever means you use, we pray that if it's your will, it might be us as we seek to put no stumbling block before them. Please give us the courage and take the risk to invite them to read the Bible with us, to invite them to hear one of the talks. And we pray that they will be saved. And if it's your will, that we too might tell many more about you throughout the world. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now when you become a Christian, Jesus says that normal discipleship is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. Jason and Paula quoted that before. To deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Jesus. What does it mean to take up your cross? It's to live as if it is better to die than to be ashamed of Jesus in the context of Mark 8. To live as if it's better to die than to lie. Better to die than to commit adultery. Better to die than to be unfaithful. Better to die than for Paul not proclaim the gospel of Jesus. When you become a Christian, it actually means signing a blank check. It means I live no longer for myself, but for Jesus. I belong to him. And so my rights are just negligible. I'm just a steward his resources, which includes my very life for him. So what would that mean for you? And I just want to end with three questions. First question is, do you really believe this gospel that we've been studying? Do you really believe it? Do you actually believe that this news is so good that it is worth proclaiming to others? If you really knew that you had a cure for cancer, wouldn't you want to tell the world? Well, we have better news than a cure for cancer. We have a news that's going to see people ripped out of hell into heaven. News that Jesus is Lord of the world. We have better news. Do you really believe it? That's the first question. Because the second question is this. If you really do believe it, are you done with sin? If you do believe the gospel, are you done with sin? Because that's what the gospel does. It means denying myself, denying myself of sin's pleasures. And that's a good litmus test of whether you really believe this news because that's what the gospel does, you see. When was the last time you looked at pornography? These days I don't ask, do you struggle with it? I just ask, when was the last time? And inevitably, I usually get an answer of some kind. What are the areas of godliness that you don't seriously address? One person put it this way, be killing sin 
or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So true. But you know what? The best way to kill sin is to kill the fleeting pleasures of sin with the eternal pleasure of the gospel. To kill the fleeting pleasure of sin with the eternal pleasure of the gospel. To kill the deceitful pleasure of sin with the true pleasure of the sensational news of Jesus. Do you believe the gospel? Secondly, if you believe it, are you done with sin? Thirdly, if you are, and I'm not saying you'll be sinless, but you have resolved that living God's way is the best way to live. Then if that's the case, then thirdly, are you willing to live your life and to die your death for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to live your life and die your death for the sake of the gospel. I'm asking questions about your character and your conviction. I'm not asking you about your abilities or your competencies, about going on the mission field, because they really arise, the idea of convictions and competencies is really the seedbed, but the idea of your gifts actually comes out of that seedbed of character and conviction. Are you willing to? That's the point. Are you willing to? I'm not saying that you have to. I need to ask you, are you willing to? Because you're not going to if you're not willing. Are you actually willing to give up everything? I remember someone asking me that for the first time at a mid-year conference, and they asked us to sign a piece of paper to say, I, I might be willing to. And I remember doing that. And then you know, the, the Wednesday after that mid-year conference, I remember standing up, you know, getting out of bed with a nightmare, just sweating a bit. I just thought, oh no, I've signed my life away. I'm going to be a missionary in Bongo Bongo somewhere as a result. And I think, but, you know, but that shows that I really wasn't all that willing. You know. well, it's just a question of willingness. Jesus says to be a normal disciple. Normal disciples is to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. If and only if you can answer yes to these questions, can you then ask questions about gifts and personalities and suitability for the mission field? On the 6th of August, which is a Saturday, so that's not long away, that's what, two and a half weeks from today, we're going to have what's called a challenge day in which you can consider this more seriously. Write it down, 6th of August, Saturday. It'll be on campus somewhere. And Rob's invited Philip Jensen to speak to us about that, to think through what it might mean for us to consider giving up my life for the sake of gospel ministry. And then there's another conference called MTS Mission Minded Conference, which is the October long weekend. So it's the first weekend of October. And if you're seriously considering that, then we'd love you to firstly come to that challenge morning that's just half a morning. And then after that, to come perhaps to the weekend away where we can give you particular attention and thinking through what that might, might be for you. And many of you are in pilgrimage along those lines to think through those things, just like Jason and Paula was all those years ago. But don't be guilted into it. Guilt is, is a terrible, terrible motivation. It's not guilt. What motivates us to want to participate in the gospel is the gospel itself. You know when people say, are you called to the ministry? The gospel's the call. It's not some still small voice. China, China. Actually, a friend did that to a, another friend uh, at a courtyard and he heard this voice coming out of a balcony. He was, China. He looked up and it was a mate who was just playing a joke on him at the time. <laughs> you know. but, but that's not the call. The gospel's the call. The gospel's the call. So let me urge you to ensure that the gospel gets bigger and bigger in your life as the days go on. John Piper once helpfully wrote that the gospel gets bigger when in your heart grace gets bigger and 
Christ gets greater and his death gets more wonderful and his resurrection gets more astonishing and the work of the Spirit gets mightier and the power of the gospel gets more pervasive and its global extent gets wider and your own sin gets uglier and the devil gets more evil and the gospel's roots into eternity go deeper and its connections with everything in the Bible and in the world get stronger and the magnitude of its celebration in eternity gets louder. So please keep this in mind. Never let the gospel get smaller in your heart. Pray that it won't. Read solid books on the gospel. Sing about the gospel. If you're going to listen to music, why not listen to gospel music? I'm not talking about the style of music. I'm talking about the content of the music. So that that's running around in your heads. Sing about it. Tell someone about it who is ignorant or unsure about it. May the gospel grow in our hearts daily so that we might participate in it and become all things to all people in order that we might save some for the glory of God the Father. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your sensational news that was couriered from heaven concerning Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection. And the call upon our lives to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. Oh, please, Father, may the gospel get bigger in our hearts so that compelled by it, We'll be living to give up everything to serve you, whatever it takes, in order to save some. And Father, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.